Hi friends, welcome to Womankind. Um, I'm here in episode 13 with a really exciting guest today. We have so much to talk about, so we're just going to jump right into it. So I'm here with Carol Lydon. She's a registered dietitian, um, nutritionist, and she's a blogger at The Foodie Dietitian, and she's also the author of Nourish Your Namaste. Um, so she has a pretty lengthy resume, and we have a lot to talk about. So Kara, hi. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited about this. Karen and I have known each other for more than half of our lives right now um, because I grew up with her husband, but so did she because they've been dating since what? You guys were 14, 15? Forever. Yeah, like 15, but you know, who's counting? I love it. Um, So we're... My first question for you, Kara, is I just want to hear about the journey of your career and how you ended up where you are now. Because I think from where you were at the beginning is very different from where you've ended up. Totally, yeah. Um, so my career started as a registered dietitian, nutritionist. Um, I went to school for nutrition and um, did my dietetic internship, which is basically like 12 months of clinical training to um, become a licensed dietitian. And I started my career in clinical, so I worked at um, Tufts Medical Center in downtown Boston, um, doing one-on-one counseling, um, specializing in weight management, and working primarily with uh, patients who were candidates for bariatric surgery, which is weight loss surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a great first job. Um, I worked four days a week and had Fridays off, which was amazing. Um, I worked with a great team, um, but at the end of the day, I felt like my heart wasn't in recommending weight loss surgery for people. Um, you know, it's a lot of people came in just thinking it would be a quick fix to losing weight and, um, and, and also like putting people on diets and making them lose weight, which I now today do something completely different with my clients. Um, and I know so much more about how dieting doesn't work and, um, and so I, I did that for about a year, and then on the side I was blogging, and uh, Chibani Greek Yogurt actually found my blog and reached out to me, and they're like, hey, I love what you do. Um, we are actually looking to bring a dietitian onto our team. So I went from clinical to the corporate food world and did like nutrition PR and marketing and communications for Chobani for um, a little over two years, and learned a lot about um, marketing and business and uh, communications, all of which serve me well today and what I do today. Um, and so uh, with my role at Chobani, um, the company went through some restructuring. I found myself without a job. And it was a really great time for me to sort of take a step back and think about why I went into nutrition in the first place. And why I really love this field and, you know, sort of what my next move was going to be. And I decided that I was passionate about a lot of different things pertaining to food and nutrition. Um, I missed one-on-one counseling. I wanted to get back into that. I, I liked blogging. I loved writing about food and nutrition. I liked developing recipes. I liked doing food photography, um, all of these different things. And so I thought, well, maybe I can just kind of piece them all together and make a business and career out of it. And so that's where I am today. And it's almost like my three-year business anniversary, if you will. So um, like three years of like being on your own then, right? Kind of. Yeah. 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 
which um, is crazy. It doesn't feel like it's been three years. It feels like it's maybe been like one year. Um, <laughs> it's just like flown by. It's been such a blur. But um, yeah, so that was kind of like my career path. And so today I kind of do a bunch of different things. Um, I work uh, with women one-on-one on um, something called intuitive eating, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more um, later. Um, and I have my food blog called The Foodie Dietitian, which is basically a space where we celebrate food um, through delicious, nourishing recipes. Um, and I just love like taking beautiful pictures of food. And so um, that's part of my whole like food celebration thing. Um, and then I do, I write for a few nutrition publications, um, Food Network, Shape, Eating Well, um, things like that. And, and then I teach yoga, um, which uh, is also a really interesting um, integration with nutrition, um, kind of piecing the two together. Um, because as we know, there's so much more wrapped up in food than just the food itself. Um, you know, there's a lot of emotional ties and, uh, and yoga is a really great practice to be more mindful and intuitive around food and being able to listen to your body and sit with difficult emotions rather than turning to food, um, to cope. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, as, as Kelsey mentioned, I have a, an ebook all about, um, integrating nutrition and yoga to, um, help improve your health and things like digestion and, um, immunity and energy and relaxation. And so that's kind of, my career path. <laughs> wow, that's like quite a path. So I'm curious. Well, first of all, I have a couple follow-up questions. The first one is, what's what is that word that you used at the beginning of about um, people who are candidates for weight loss surgery? I don't think uh, that was bariatric. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard that word before. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like the I don't know technical mm-hmm. term for weight loss surgery. Bariatric. At first, I thought you said geriatric, and I was like, wait a minute, that's, <laughs> that's not it. No, not um, quite. <laughs> so I think, like, from what I've heard here through your story, like, um, it seems like you went through a pretty significant shift in, like, your attitudes about your approach to, like, food and weight loss and all of those things. So I guess my question is, um, like, when you were in school, what was the focus? Was it the same, like, did they talk about intuitive eating when you were in school becoming a dietitian? Like what, what was the, what were the differences that you saw between where you've arrived now and how it was in the beginning? Cause it sounds so different. Sure. Yeah, it, it is so different. Um, and it's such a shame and such an issue that I have with, um, the, the schooling for, um, dietitians right now, um, is that it's very much, follows the sort of traditional Western model of weight management, which is um, a model that's based on restriction. It's a model that's based on dieting. It's a model that's based on uh, this notion that fat is bad and thin is good. Um, It's uh, very much, there's very much weight stigma involved. Um, And so, yeah, as a student, you know, you kind of learned like these foods are good. These foods are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there's just so many issues with, with that sort of model. Um, uh, so many dietitians have undetected eating disorders because mm-hmm. of the schooling and because of the rigidity, um, that's involved. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. And, um, and no, there was no discussion in our schooling about intuitive eating. I never heard of that term until like, a couple years ago, mm-hmm. um, even like 
in regards to eating disorders. Like we had maybe like a chapter on eating disorders in our entire four years of nutrition education. Yeah. Um, and, and disordered eating is so prevalent today. Um, and there's so many undetected, um, eating disorders and, um, subclinical eating disorders like orthorexia today is, is becoming more and more prevalent. Um, so orthorexia is, um, it's not a clinically defined eating disorder like anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorders. Those have actual diagnoses under like the DSM, which is um, like a psychiatric diagnosis thing. Um, manual, I don't know. What you're <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, that sounds good. And, uh, orthorexia is basically this, um, really obsessed, rigid, um, sort of clean eating approach. So, um, so you've probably heard like the term clean eating before, but orthorexia is basically taking that to an extreme and becoming extremely rigid about it. Um, to the point where you're feeling extreme amounts of like shame or guilt if you sort of go off of that mm-hmm. clean eating plan. I mean, that sounds like, you know, so many people that I know, so many people I've encountered are like, I can't eat this and I have to eat this and this is bad. And that's, as I learned, that's a really unhealthy way to go about it. It's and- so unhealthy. Yeah. Um, people don't realize that, you know, what we eat is only one really small component of our overall health, right? I mean, there's so many other factors that go into our health. There's, there's movement, um, but not just like our, our physical health, there's also our mental health and our emotional health. And if we're completely stressed out about what we're eating or what we're not eating, that's going to negatively impact our mental and emotional health, which mm-hmm. is really important. It's not just about physical health. It's about, you know, holistic health in the true sense of holistic health. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll get into that more when we start talking about yoga and how nutrition fits into that. Um, but now, so I'm curious, last year I did the whole 30 diet for, well, 30 days. Um, and that was like my first time ever doing something like that. And the experience was really, well, my boyfriend will say that that was all I talked about the entire month because normally I just, you know, eat what I want and to like, you know, be restricted from eating certain things. It was so difficult to like go to a restaurant and look at the menu and see that nothing on the menu fit with the plan. Um, and so it just seemed like a, and I know that that diet in particular, I don't even know if they call it a diet. I don't, that plan is supposed to be very restrictive and it's supposed to last only 30 days. It's not supposed to be a lifestyle. Um, but what do you have to say about plans like that or diets like that? Yeah. Um, they're so common today. It's funny, like all of these different quote unquote plans are emerging that aren't calling themselves diets and yet they're restrictive. You know, their model is based on restriction. Um, I had a client come to me the other day with, um, this book titled like the end of dieting or something like that. And the entire, it was written by a medical doctor And the entire book was about a diet, and yet the title is The End of Dieting, and yet the whole entire book was about his um, restrictive model, where you cut out all these different foods and focus only on these foods, and I'm like, the dieting culture today is just so sneaky and insidious, and it just, like, creeps in everywhere, even if you're marketing something as non-diet, if you, you know, sort of peel back the layers, you'll realize, oh, actually, this is, in fact, a diet, I think 
anything that involves any form of restriction mm-hmm. should be considered a diet um, and shouldn't be labeled as like a healthy lifestyle plan. No, if you're restricting your eating in any way, you're essentially dieting. Um, and, and research shows that diets don't work. I mean, they work in the short term from a weight per standpoint. Like, yes, if you diet and you restrict your intake, you will lose weight in the short term. But long term, research shows that 95% of people who diet end up gaining their weight back. And then not some. Anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So 95%. Like, that's, that's like huge, everybody. That's everyone. Mm-hmm. And then people feel like they failed, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, like, I failed. Like, this is – and they put so much shame on themselves for, like, failing these diets. But the diets failed them. People don't fail their diets. The diets fail them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the diet industry is, like, a $67 billion industry. Mm-hmm. Um so really, like, they're just out to profit on this notion that you're not good enough as you are. Mm-hmm. They're out there to make money. They don't care about your health. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything you're saying is reminding me of all that I've read about, like, the biggest loser and how they have, like, those camps that people go to. And people on the show lose, like, massive amounts of weight and then are not healthy at the end of it. And then they gain it all back. It's I don't know, but then, like, at the same time, that's a TV show that, you know, millions of people are watching and taking in and, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, eating it up, and it just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, oh, so I wanted to get a definition from you of disordered eating. Um, like, what is your, and I, it could be, like, the medical definition of it, but what falls under that category of disordered eating? Yeah. Um, so like a, a true eating disorder, like a clinical eating disorder would be like anorexia nervosa, which is based on restriction, um, bulimia nervosa, which is, um, binging and purging. There's some purging involved. So whether that's like, you know, vomiting or, um, or like, uh, pills or like purging for exercise. Um, and then, uh, there's also binge eating disorder, um, where you're binging, but you're not purging. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the clinical eating disorders. And then disordered eating is kind of like this umbrella term for anything that doesn't meet like the clinical definitions um, for eating disorders. So um, like orthorexia would fall under disordered eating. Um, I think disordered eating is really anytime someone is feeling shame, like extreme shame or guilt, like around their food choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and has a preoccupation with their, the food that they're eating. Like a lot of the women that I see who have disordered eating, um, they have been dying their whole lives and they just, you know, they're obsessed over calories and grams of carbs and grams of fat. And, they think about food all day long. They think about their bodies all day long. They're terrified of gaining weight. They're so dissatisfied with their bodies. Um, and so that's sort of the, the common um, thing that I see with women who have sort of disordered eating. I think, I think dieting sets people up for disordered eating, really. And in some cases, dieting is disordered eating. <laughs> Uh, but it's kind of that? masked as this like acceptable thing that like everyone does and that is fine. 
Yeah, yeah. It's disguised under this notion of like, well, I'm just taking care of myself. I'm just being healthy. I'm just eating clean foods. And people don't think twice about it because it is. It's disguised under this notion of health. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, that's why I think it's so important that there are professionals out there who are doing this work who can like detect, you know, these, these sort of issues that are, that are so prevalent today. So let's shift into then talking about solutions then to this and talk about intuitive eating a little bit more. Cause I don't know that my listeners will know what that is. So let's um, define that a little bit and talk about it. Yeah, sure. Um, so intuitive eating um, is, well, there's a book called intuitive eating. It's written by um, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. Um, they're two dietitians who basically wrote the book on intuitive eating, literally. <laughs> literally uh, wrote the book. And, uh, and I did my training with them, so I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor. Mm-hmm. But intuitive eating is basically, um, it's based on the notion that, like, we all are born with this innate ability to know what we want to eat, how much we need to eat, um, when we're hungry, when we're full. Like, if you look at a toddler and their eating patterns – they don't always make sense. Like, you know, sometimes a toddler will like eat only broccoli like Mm -hmm. at a meal. And then the next day all they want is, I don't know, chicken. Like their eating patterns don't make sense. And like, even though like you think they should be hungry because it's been, you know, a certain amount of time, they might not be hungry, but then like 10 minutes later, maybe they're hungry. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times parents want to like micromanage their child's eating patterns, but children know how to eat. Like they, they have this innate uh, ability to know like when to eat and how much to eat. Mm -hmm. And so somewhere along the way we lose touch with that inner voice, whether it's because someone told us when we should be eating, someone told us what we should be eating. Someone told us, we're in a body size that's not acceptable. Maybe a physician told us we need to lose weight. Maybe a dietitian told us we shouldn't eat this or we should eat that. Or maybe our mother told us. Um, so somewhere along the way, we start looking to external uh, factors to figure out what we should eat and how much we should eat. And we lose touch with that sort of innate ability to, to listen to our bodies. And so intuitive eating is all about getting back in touch with those with those cues. So it's about rejecting the diet mentality, um, moving away from this notion that certain foods are good, certain foods are bad. We sort of put all foods on a neutral um, playing field. Mm-hmm. Not in terms of nutrition. Like, we're not saying all foods are nutritionally equal. That would just be a lie. <laughs> but we're saying that, like, from a morality standpoint, foods are equal. Like, mm-hmm. you're not a bad person for eating a certain food. And you're not a good person for eating certain food. Um, okay, that's all interesting. Foods, so it kind all, of eliminates the, like, the shame yes. in a way. And the guilt. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so like all foods serve a purpose. So even like what someone might call like quote unquote junk food, mm-hmm. I call fun food. Like it serves Ooh, a purpose. I like that. <laughs> it's supposed to evoke pleasure. And like a lot of people think that we're not supposed to get pleasure from food, mm-hmm. but we most certainly are. Like evolutionarily speaking, humans, we have to live. Like we, we need food to live. So if food wasn't pleasurable, like 
we probably all wouldn't be here today, right? Like <laughs> food is meant to be pleasurable and it's, we, we want food to be pleasurable so that we want to keep eating it so that we stay alive. Um, and a lot of people think that food isn't supposed to be pleasurable, but, um, it most certainly is. And so that's another part of intuitive eating is like finding pleasure from food, finding satisfaction from food, mm-hmm. using that to determine what you eat rather than like what you think you should eat today. It's like, no, what is my body craving right now? What does my body want? Um, and a lot of my clients get really freaked out about that because they think, okay, if I do that, all I'm going to want to eat is ice cream all day. Like mm-hmm. all I'm going to want to eat is chocolate all day. But, and I understand like where that fear comes from. That fear is valid, right? Because like those have been forbidden foods. They've been mm-hmm. off limits for so long. And so they're kind of scary, but there's something called food habituation, which is basically like our, our bodies like don't won't want to eat the same thing like over and over and over again. Like at some point your body's going to start wanting something else. Um, the novelty of that food sort of wears off. Mm -hmm. Um, so like if you think about when you go travel somewhere for a while and like maybe you're only eating a certain type of food, when you come back home, you're going to be like, yeah, that's the last thing I want to touch. Like I want something different, right? You just kind of wear that out. Um, and it becomes less interesting. Um, So that's kind of like food habituation. Um, And then other components of intuitive eating are listening to your hunger cues, um, listening to your fullness cues, um, finding intuitive movement. So like finding ways to move your body that are joyful rather than like, um, I don't know, kind of like punitive, like punishing forms of exercise. Um, Like some people work out to like, make their bodies look a certain way. They like want to control their bodies, but, um, it's like more, it's healthier to find ways that like you actually enjoy moving and that are actually like nourishing to your body. Um, and that's another piece of intuitive eating is this notion of body respect. So, um, we do a lot of like body image work, um, you know, not, like telling my clients that like they need to love their bodies because that's not realistic. There's this big like body positivity movement that's going on right now. And people think like, Oh my God, if I don't like love my body 24 seven, then I'm doing it wrong. Like, mm-hmm. no, like you just have to come to a place where you respect your body for like mm-hmm. what it does. And, um, and you don't have to love it every day. I don't think there's anyone out there that like loves their body 24 seven. That's okay. Like you just have to respect it. And, that, you know, that means like mm-hmm. wearing clothes that fit you and are comfortable. That means choosing forms of movement that like feel good in your body. That so means... when you say like forms of movement, you mean like exercise, right? But yeah, but okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't know. Like I pictured just like stretching to the side and then being like, I'm done. But like, you know, choosing forms of exercise that work for you that you like so instead of going to the gym and having the attitude like okay this is going to be suffering maybe going to a class that's like a dance class or something Uh, or maybe you do enjoy like punishing your body in that way but you know doing something that will make you come out of it and say hey that was like a really good thing that I just did for myself yeah something that feels good in your body yeah um and something that's like you're going to come out of and be like oh like I'm I feel so much like brighter. I feel like happier. I have more energy. Not something that's going to like, I don't know, just like make you feel like you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of forms of exercise out there that I think do that. Oh yeah. Uh, 
And that's why I use the word movement is because mm-hmm. I think exercise does. It has sort of, some connotations to it. It does. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I like the word movement. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I, I get it now. I just, I was uh, <laughs> picturing like, I was picturing something that lasted about three seconds and then that was it. I was like, okay, I can move in a good way. <laughs> Um, I want to go back to talking about the food for a second. This is more of just like a personal question for myself and understanding here. Um, so, or no, maybe, maybe it's more of a general question. Um, in terms of like the food that we have available to us, um, like in the United States, like, I mean, we, like, I grew up eating processed food as many people did. Um, and I don't think that there was as much of an awareness around like the type of food we were consuming when we were younger that there is now. Um, and so I wonder, I feel like my body is conditioned. Like I love white bread. Like I can just eat white bread all the time. And I feel like because I've had white bread my whole life, my body is like conditioned to want that. And so in terms of like intuitive eating, I'm like, yeah, I definitely want like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and then a grilled cheese sandwich. And like, just kind of, and I, I don't know, is that, um, does that go away as part of intuitive eating or is there something, some way we can avoid that moving forward as a society, like wanting those things that are processed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so two things. One is like sort of once people have made peace with food, um, once they've given themselves unconditional permission to eat all foods, then we sort of move on to what we call gentle nutrition, um, which is basically talking about, um, you know, what foods are going to be nourishing for our body. So we talk about um, nutrients like protein and fiber and um fats that are good for you and how incorporating those types of nutrients, uh, into your, um, eating patterns can help you to feel satiated and full and satisfied. Um, and that's really important because fullness, um, is part of satisfaction, right? And we want, um, people to be satisfied by the foods that they're eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, if you're going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, if you have it on whole wheat bread, that's probably going to fill you up um, for longer. It's probably going to be more satiating, um, maybe more more satisfying. Um, so but I kind so of did what you just said. I was like, white bread, that's a bad food because I know that's a bad, like, you know, so I mean, it's like so ingrained in me. Um, yeah. But I mean, that would never stop me from eating it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And it's, I think it's so ingrained in a lot of people. Um, and, and I think like, that's the difference, right? Like you, you have this awareness of like, okay, like I know whole wheat bread, it's got fiber, so it's going to be more satiating and nourishing, but like you give yourself permission to eat the white bread because like you like the taste of it where someone else you know, that might be a forbidden food that like they can't keep in the house and they are scared of and they, you know, think it's going to make them gain weight. And, you know, just all of these um, thoughts that get built up in their heads around these certain foods. And so, you know, we try to work um, together on like sort of getting away from that, like black or white thinking and like the all or nothing mentality, like all white carbs are going to make me gain weight. Like, no, that's, that's not how... (laughs) That's not how things work. Um, like, and one, one meal is not going to affect your health, right? Like 
Um, you know, it's, it's more so like the pattern of like your week or your month mm-hmm. as opposed to like putting so much emphasis on like one meal or one thing that you eat. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, let's, we've been talking about food for like a long time now. Not that I don't love it, but that's, <laughs> you do so many things. Let's talk about some of the other things. Let's connect this to, um, practicing yoga and how like these pieces kind of fit together. And that's the, the subject of your book, Nourish Your Namaste. Available yeah. where? Where is it available? Um, it's available on my website, caraleiden.com. So you can check it out there. <laughs> um, yeah, so yoga um, has always just been a big part of my life. Um, I started practicing when I was like 16 years old, not regularly, but I think that's like when I went to my first yoga class. And then I picked it up um, a little bit more regularly in college. It's just been a way for me to help manage stress and anxiety, and it's always been just a big part of my life. And so when I was at that career crossroads where I didn't know what I was going to do next after I was let go from my corporate job, I went on a yoga retreat in Costa Rica, and um, and I, ha- I was working with a life coach at the time, and she said something to me. She was like, stop asking yourself what you want to do and ask yourself who do you want to be? Mm-hmm. And she said this to me, like, right before I went to yoga class, and I'm, like, sitting in Shavasana, all zend out, and, like, I'm, like, oh, my God, this is who I want to be. Like, I want to be a yoga teacher. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. And I, had like, come off of this amazing yoga retreat in Costa Rica, and um, so I just decided that I wanted to go and do my yoga teacher training and become a registered yoga teacher. And I thought it would be a really cool integration with nutrition Um, obviously they're both in the sort of holistic health and wellness space, but, um, I think, you know, when it comes to nutrition and the foods that we eat, um, that I think there's so many like emotional components wrapped up in the food that we eat. And a lot of people, when they're dealing with painful emotions, they tend to turn to food to cope Mm -hmm. rather than being able to like sit with those emotions and Mm -hmm. feel them, process them. And so yoga helps us to do that. Like yoga helps us to be still and to sit with the uncomfortable feelings. And um, rather than like going and opening up the freezer and like seeing what's in the cupboards or what they can eat. Um, And the other thing that yoga does too um, is it helps us to become more aware of our bodily sensations, right? It helps us to connect like our mind and body more. And so um, if we're more connected to our body, we have an easier time at listening to some of those body cues. So I mentioned before, like with intuitive eating, you know, we work on listening to our hunger cues, listening to fullness cues. And sometimes my clients come in and they don't even know what that feels like. They don't know what hunger feels like. They don't know what fullness feels like. They're so out of touch with their bodies. Um, and so yoga can help us to like get back into our body and, and really feel the different, um, physical sensations that take place in our body. Um, and, and I think too, like, it's just, um, a space that helps us to be in our bodies and to become comfortable and like respectful of our bodies and what they do for us. Um, and I think, you know, with people who have body image issues, that are tied up with eating issues, I think um, yoga can be really therapeutic in that sense too. Yeah, I think a lot of people 
find yoga to be a good outlet for solving some of those issues. Like, I always feel like I hear that, like, hand-in-hand with a solution for people. (laughs) So this is what you talk about in your book, correct? Yeah. Connection. Yeah, I talk about the connection. Um, I don't talk about intuitive eating in detail in the book. It's more focused on like how you can use nutrition and yoga together to help improve different areas of health. So um, there's like, so like the first chapter is all about um, nutrition and yoga, how you can eat to like fuel your yoga practice Mm -hmm. um, and how like yoga philosophy pertains to uh, nutrition. Mm -hmm. And then the last four chapters are each about a different tenet of health. So there's Mm -hmm. digestion, immunity, energy, and relaxation. And each chapter goes into what foods help to support those things and also what yoga poses you can do to support those things. So it breaks down different yoga poses. Mm -hmm. It breaks down different um, foods. And then each chapter has like two recipes that incorporate some of the foods that are helpful um, for those, those things. Nice. All right, Kara, I think we're going to get into hearing a little bit more about you personally, not that we haven't yet, but um, we're just, I'm just going to ask you, you know, the standard questions. So the, my first question is, what's your story? But I think, is there anything you want to add to that? Because I think we've covered a lot of that, but. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I talked about, like, my sort of career story. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can get into, like, why I went into nutrition in the first place. If, oh, sure. That'd be great. On that route. Um, so I, like, growing up as a kid, um always loved food and uh until a certain point um I was probably around like I don't know eight or nine years old when I started to notice that my body looked different than like other bodies in my classroom so I'm like I live in a short body I'm like five feet on a good day so I always (laughs) was sort of um I don't know picked out for like being the, the shortest one in my classes Um, And so that put extra attention on me in terms of, like, how my body looked in terms of height. And then I, um, like, when I was sort of in my prepubescent phase, I put on on weight, which is a very normal thing for, um, like, pre-adolescent girls to do before they get their menstrual cycle. Um, And I got my menstrual cycle earlier than a lot of my girlfriends did, a lot of my classmates did. So I was putting on this weight before anyone else really was. And so I was looking around me like, what's going on? Like, all my friends are in these really thin bodies and, like, I'm putting on weight. And the thing that, like, makes me so angry is that, like, my pediatrician never told my parents that this was a normal thing that was happening. Mm -hmm. They never said, like, oh, it's really common that girls this age, like, put on weight. And what I know now is that it's common for girls to put on anywhere between like 10 to like, I think 30 pounds before they get their menstrual cycle. Cause your body's sort of preparing for that change. Um, but no one told us this. So here I, mean, I was there's definitely something. like, sorry to interrupt. There's definitely yeah. like a disconnect between like Western medicine and weight and nutrition and right. body image and all of this. Yes. Well, it's fat phobia and there's so much stigma around fat and it plays into the Western medical community, even the Eastern medical community, really. Um, yeah, it's, it's so ingrained in our medical community and I could talk about that for a long time, um, but I don't want to get on a tangent. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I put on weight and 
so my parents took me to see a nutritionist when I was, I don't know, maybe like 10 years old or like 11 years old. And I remember it was like a community health center. And I don't remember much from that appointment. All I remember is that she literally gave me a list of like foods and there was like a line down the middle and it was like good foods, bad foods. Oh like, my these gosh. These are foods you should eat and these are the foods you should not eat. And like what a horrible message to send to At a little eight girl. years old, nine years old. Ah, oh my gosh. Horrible. So like that was like my first experience into like dieting culture and like what I should and shouldn't be eating. And so, so my relationship with food changed like in those years um, like those early teen years, I started to um, do like some subtle restricting. Um, like I became a vegetarian when I was like 11 or 12 years old, um, which there was some like reasoning to it. Like I, I, and I went to a factory farming like animal sanctuary. So I like that it was all about the animal rights and ethics. And I think there is a lot of truth to that, but I also don't think it was a coincidence that like I became a vegetarian and then like a year later I developed an eating disorder. Like that probably wasn't a coincidence. So, and then recently my mother told me that after I stopped eating meat, I also very shortly after said, I'm not going to eat dessert anymore. So that happened. So there's a connection. Okay. Yeah. So there was some like subtle restriction going on, but disguised under this notion of like, I want to, be healthier and I wouldn't lose weight because, you know, like I've been told like my body is not good enough as it is. And so like, so no one really questioned it. And then when I was 13 in eighth grade, I like my mom went on Weight Watchers. Um, so I had like those points all around me. And I remember like going through her brochures and like counting up my points for the day because she was counting her points. And so like I knew the points of all these different foods. I was keeping track of that. Um, and then my like best friend at the time was restricting her eating. So and I remember looking at her like, okay, well she's in this thin body. Like she's restricting her eating. I should restrict my eating. So it's kind of like this perfect storm. I also was going through a period where I felt like I didn't have control. My parents were making me go to a high school that I didn't want to go to. I like went to this public grammar school and I wanted to go to a public high school and they told me I had to go to an all Oh my gosh, I never knew that. <laughs> cool. Um, and that's a common, um, cause of eating disorders is feeling like you don't have control. And so you want to control something else. So you go to control food. So it's kind of this perfect storm. So I ended up developing anorexic, like restrictive behaviors. I was never clinically diagnosed with anorexia as far as I know. But what I do know is that I ended up going to see a dietitian once again. Um, and this time it was because I needed to gain weight. Um, I stopped getting my period, um, amenorrhea, which is a common, um, side effect of anorexia or eating disorders. Um, and so I worked with this dietitian and I don't really know, you know, if I think it was a combination of things that helped me to recover. I think it was working with a dietitian. I think it was also, um, going to a new high school where, um, my new group of friends all had very healthy relationships with food. There was no shaming going on there was no restriction going on you know our high school was serving up chocolate cookies for breakfast and everyone was eating them and I'm like oh this is okay to do we can eat cookies for breakfast okay um and so I think just like being in this like in a more positive um supportive environment was really helpful um with with my recovery and so 
So that's, that's what made me want to go into nutrition. I was like, I want to help girls that like went through what I went through because it was a miserable time in my life. I was, I was absolutely miserable. And, um, and I think that there's just so much pleasure and joy that we can get from food and eating. And, um, and yet so many people, um, it's, it's a source of anxiety and shame and guilt. And, um, you know, no one should have to feel that way about the food that they're eating. And that's amazing, too, because so much of our culture is, like, centered around eating. Like, I know I did Whole30 for a month, but throughout that month, there were so many situations where, like, I couldn't drink or, like, there was a particular food that I couldn't eat or whatever. And then I was always, like, having a conversation of, like, well, why aren't you eating that? Tell me more. Like, and it was very, like, invasive, but... I, like, I didn't want to answer these personal questions. Like, food is so personal, and yet at the same time, everything we do is centered around eating and celebrating and being around a table together. And so it's a very interesting dichotomy there with those those two things. It's so private and so personal, and then so... Yeah, we, we all, all do it. At the same yeah. time, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's ingrained in our customs and our traditions. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Kara, what does being a woman mean to you in 2017, personally, but also generally? Yeah, I mean, I just feel like this has been an interesting year for women. Um, Like, I think about the start of the year and uh, the Women's March that happened the day after the inauguration of our um, president. Uh, And I was in San Francisco the day of the Women's March, and I um, participated in it there. My husband was there with me, so he came and joined me. And I just don't think I've ever felt prouder to be a woman, like, participating in that march. And then seeing the marches that were happening in cities all over this country, but not even just in our country, across the world. Like, Australia. happening all over the world. And it was like, just so amazing. And it was also really cool to see how, like, it wasn't just women at these marches. There were plenty of men. There were women with their children. Like, it was just, everyone was, like, standing up to, like, fight for women's rights and equality and uh, all over the world. And um, I don't know, I was just, like, really empowered and, and proud to, like, be a woman and to, like, be fighting for, like, what matters to us. And, um, And so I think, yeah, I think it's an exciting time to be a woman. I think we are more charged up, like, than we have been maybe before. But I also think that, you know, we have, like, a long way to go, too. Like, there's still more work to be done. Um, Definitely. And that's something that I'm struggling with now because I feel like people are so fired up and there are so many good things that are coming out of it, but it's because bad things are happening that people are so fired up about it. I mean, I, I mean, I created this podcast in, you know, days after the election, like that's where this came from really. And yeah, like I said, like people are mobilizing because there are terrible things happening and I, you know, I just wish the terrible things were not happening, Um, but it is a good thing for people to be mobilized and for people to be taking action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that was answering the personal or the general question. I mean, that might be both. (laughs) 
Um, I think too, like women today, there's so much pressure to like have it all, do it all. Like you can, like you can do it all, and like there's this expectation that women can, like can or and should, like have the successful career, like be the great perfect mom that like gets her kids to school on time and like goes to PTA meetings and like gets dinner on the table for her family and and that like nothing is going to give but like that's such a false like ideal to strive for like that's not that's not real life like no one has their shit together like no one's no one is perfect and like at some point something has to give like I don't think that you can have it all today and like the thing that my fear is that the thing that gives is like women's sanity that like women are just like they don't um they don't put themselves first they put everyone else before them and like they don't prioritize self-care um and like and And I mean you witness like the fallout of that like with your clients because you know people in the aftermath Uh uh yeah and and a lot of my clients just struggle with um yeah this notion that like they're not good enough. Like they, they don't feel like they have this sense of, you know, value and self-worth. And, um, and I think, you know, it's really important that like women know, like, you know, you, you are perfect, like just for like showing up in this world. Like you don't need to like have your shit together all the time. (laughs) Like you are enough, like you are enough just as you are. Like that's, that's enough. (laughs) so that answer you know that there's so much pressure on women like I'm pretty sure almost every single one of my guests has said that so far and so I kind of have this like evolving thought with everything that I've heard and it's and I it's that women can be anything but they can't be everything at once I guess Mm um yeah that makes sense right yeah that yeah we can be anything, but we can't be everything at once. And that's, I think that's where the problems lie is that we are trying to be everything at once and then you burn out and lose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do anything you want. Absolutely. Um, but I think it's the problem set in is when like you put pressure on yourself to have, do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's that, it's that pressure. It's that like, inner critic voice that comes out. Um, like I do a lot of work with my clients around self-compassion, which I think is like a really helpful practice for women. Um, you know, just like being kind to yourself, like, um, you know, we can often be our worst critic, um, ourselves. So like, you know, asking yourself, okay, like if my friend was going through this same thing, like how would I talk to my friend about it rather than like, you know, beating yourself up? Like how would I talk to my friend about it? However, you're going to talk to your friends, talk to yourself in that way. Like give yourself the same kindness um, that you would, you know, a good friend. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really hard for a lot of people to do that. Like that definitely takes some practice and going over it again and again and catching yourself, saying nasty things to yourself and then correcting it. It, That definitely takes practice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's not something that happens overnight. I think even for me, like it's going to be a, a lifelong practice, you know, I think. Um, yeah, that's something you work on forever. But um, there's actually a great book by Kristen Neff um, that I'm reading right now called it's called Self Compassion. And so, um, if people want like more resources on you know how exactly to like practice it, um, it's it's a great read so far. 
Oh, cool. Yeah. So check that out, listeners. Um, so we've touched on a lot of this, but what are the hardest parts of being a woman? We may have just answered that with what we were talking about. So either the hardest parts of being a woman or your favorite parts. So maybe we can do a little bit of both here. Um, yeah, the hardest parts of being a woman. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we kind of just talked about it, right? Like the expectations that are set on women. Um, you know, we talked about a little bit about like, body image and appearance, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure for women to look a certain way, um, to, you know, have like, to have these thin bodies to, um, to look like women in magazines do. Um, and they're just these unattainable ideals. Like women in magazines are photoshopped, they're airbrushed, like those aren't real images. Um, and thank, thankfully there are some celebrities that have come out and like called people out for their like photoshopping and they're like, this is how I actually look, um, which I think is so helpful for women because otherwise we're going to think that like these things are attainable and they're not. Um, and I think, you know, there's so much more to women than our bodies. And, uh, and I think it's important for women to realize that, like, what else do you bring to the table? Like, a million other things like there's so many other interesting things about you than like Mm -hmm. how you look and um that's such a good point I don't think we talk about that enough and I think that a lot of times women are just reduced to their bodies or the way that they look Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely yeah um and then what was the other question what is the favorite part um yeah so I think women um, and not all women, but like, I think part of being a woman is like having a little bit more of a sensitive nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely identify with like being a sensitive soul. And I used to view that as a negative. Like I used to be like, Oh, why am I so sensitive? Like, why am I crying right now? Or like, why is this thing bothering me? Or, um, and I used to like, not like that aspect of myself, but lately I've been like really embracing it and loving that I'm sensitive because, well, one, it, like, helps me in my career seeing clients and being a counselor. Like, if I wasn't a sensitive soul, I would not be in a helping profession. Like, I wouldn't be counseling women and helping women to, um, you know, to be their best selves. So, so yeah, I think, um, I think like, that's such a positive to, to being a woman is, like, having that sort of sensitive nature and a compassionate sort of wisdom. Um, yeah. I like that too. I, and that's another answer that I hear pretty often is that the ability to express emotion openly is like a favorite of most women. Uh-huh, totally. And I agree completely. <laughs> um, so we are going to move into stories of subversion in a minute, but is there anything that you wanted to add Kara to anything we talked about today? Um, no, I think, um, you know, if, if people are looking for, like, more resources um, for, to help with some of the stuff we talked about today, I would definitely recommend that Intuitive Eating book by Evelyn Tripoli and Elise Resch. Um, Health at Every Size by Linda Bacon is another great read. Um, yeah. Okay, and we can I can post these things on Facebook or Instagram so people can check them out so they have more resources to look for. Right. Um, so yeah, so we're going to move into stories of subversion before we wrap up here. So this, it isn't necessarily like a story of subversion. It's just kind of 
something that we thought to be true for a long time that now with more facts presented and looking at it through a different lens um, and being more aware of the stories that we've been fed and taught versus what's true, this is what we have with more facts there, more facts here. So, um, and I guess this is a, just a good reminder to be mindful of where stories come from and who's telling the story um, in the situation. So I mentioned this in episode 12, um, but I didn't really get into it super specifically. Um, and so this story kind of first broke in 2013, so going back a couple years ago. Um, but the story is that um, cave paintings that have, you know, we've been told over the years were um, painted by men um, and to portray the hunt. It's come out recently that the handprints that accompany the paintings are actually women's handprints. So um, it's possible to say, to hypothesize, that women were the ones that painted the paintings. And so this kind of changes the whole story. Um, so Dean Snow, he's an archaeologist from Penn State, um, he used his analysis of hand sizes to determine that these hand, in both France and Spain, that these handprints came from women, not from men. Um, and so it's not just like he looked at the handprint and was like, oh, it's small, it's a, woman, a woman's hand. There's more analysis that went into it than that. Um, he based his findings off of handprint analysis findings from a biologist named John Manning. Um, and he discovered, so now here's the part where everyone should look at their hand, um, that women tend to have ring fingers and index fingers of about the same length, whereas men's ring fingers tend to be longer than their index fingers. And so I, when I look at my hands, one of my hands does fit that description, like, pretty significantly, and the other one is very small. Kara, what about you? What do you see? Yeah, I know. I'm like, like looking at my hands over here. Um, yeah, same, same here. So, so like, like one of my hands, my left hand, they're like exactly the same length. And then my right hand, they're um, a little, a little off, but yeah. See, my left, different. my left hand is like a huge difference. And then oh. my right hand is like a very small difference. <laughs> but so I guess, um, back way back when, um, the different, like now there's been so much like, you know, reproduction and population of the earth since 10,000 BC. Um, so there's been kind of like a muddling of it, but back then in 10,000 BC, it was like pretty distinct. Like a man's fingers would definitely have that, um, characteristic and a woman's hand would definitely have that characteristic. Um, and so, I mean, this is important to just consider because since, you know, decades and decades, we've thought that the men were the ones who were painting these paintings and that the, men's were, the men were the ones doing the hunting and doing the painting and doing everything. And so if that's how we've been informing our, our thought process on what we think about when we think about how civilization began, uh, we're really not looking at it in a balanced way. So if women were the artists in this situation, that means that you know, potentially they were the ones doing the hunting. And that would make more sense in these societies where, or these civilizations where, well, actually, this is, like, probably pre-civilization at this point. Um, hunters and gatherers, women would have definitely been doing some of the hunting. They would have been doing some of the cutting up of the meat, and they would have been involved in the process. And so um, it's just important to look at it from another perspective. So I think this is an important thing to highlight. Um, let me see what else I have here. Um, so there are, of course, some other theories out there. You know, of course, someone has to come in and say, well, they were adolescent boys, and that's why the hands are so small. 
Um, and there's also a theory that there were they were shamans that um, painted the paintings and um, put the handprints there. Um, but women were also shamans at that time. So, you know, there are just some different theories out there. And of course, we don't know for sure. Um, but it's just kind of changes archaeology and changes the way that our story as humans has developed over time, just thinking about it in a different way, that maybe women were involved in some different things that, um, you know, that the, the story wasn't really presented to us that way. I don't ever remember learning that from that perspective. So just kind of looking at it in a different way. Um, and of course, just to kind of round it out here, we don't actually even know why the handprints are there. We just know that they are there. I mean, it's possible that they were like a signature, like the way a painter signs their name in a painting. Um, but just important to realize that they aren't necessarily male handprints. They are, from what the theory says, female handprints. Um, so not really a story of subversion, but just, just something to have you guys think about it. I'll post an article about it so you can check it out. Um, Kara, do you have a story of subversion or some subversive women to talk about? Um, I don't think I have, like, a story per se off the top of my head, but, um, just, like, a subversive woman who, I think it's just, like, changing the game a little bit, um, with, like, her work, um, Brene Brown, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yeah, um, me too. I, like, discovered her via TEDx years ago. Um, she gave a TEDx talk on, like, the power of vulnerability, and I was, like, immediately hooked. Um, and so since then, I've, like, read all of her books, um, The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, and I just love her message, like, just this message of, like, kind of what we've talked a little bit about today in the podcast, like, that you are enough as you are, like, being able to, like, show your true vulnerable self, your authentic self, like, not feeling like you have to, you know, like, hide your story or hide who you are, like, really owning your story and um, and showing up as your imperfect self, because I think that's another struggle for women is, like, thinking, you know, we talked about, like, having it all together, but, like, this sense of perfectionism um, that I know is something that I struggle with and work on, and I know a lot of my clients struggle with, and I think women in general probably struggle with, um, again, not all women, but, um, yeah, this idea that, like, we have to show up and, and be perfect, but, um, perfectionism, as we know, doesn't exist, and if we strive toward it, we're only going to be causing ourselves suffering, because it's just, it doesn't exist, so that's why I love Brittany Brown, like, she just is, keeps it real, and, like, um, I don't know, it's just, like, really honest in her writing, and, um, I love the stories that she shares, and, yeah, I use one of her, I don't know if it's a TED talk or not, but I use one of her talks about empathy in my classroom. And I think it really like explains it in a, in a way that makes it easy for people to understand and kind of look at it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, here we are at about an hour. So Kara, do you have anything else that you want to add here? Um, no, this has been super fun. Um, if, it really if has. You, yeah, I've like really enjoyed this conversation. Um, well, just make sure you tell our listeners all the places that they can find you, which is quite a few places. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, you can find me on my website, caraleiden.com. Um, and I'm on social media um, 
at Kara Leiden RD, RD standing for registered dietitian. So you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram these days. And yeah, if you head over to my website, you can learn more about um, my counseling, my one-on-one coaching. I actually do, um, I'm based in Boston, but I also see clients virtually across the country. So if that's something you're interested in, um, I see clients via Skype as well. So you can find out more on my website about that. Um, you can check out my ebook, which is over on my website. And you can subscribe to my food blog and get all my delicious recipes. And they are delicious. I just made the other day um, the red velvet smoothie bowl. Nice. So good. Because I had, I like never have beets and I had a bunch of beets. And so I was like, I got to use these. And it was so good. (laughs) Yay. I love when people tell me that they try my recipes. I'm like, that makes me happy. They're so good. So check out Kara in all those different places. Kara, thanks so much for being here. Yeah. Thanks thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. Bye, friends.